Okay, we're rolling. Excellent. Welcome to Mel Forbes. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Uh, official Excellent launch stuff. of the new company tomorrow, so very excited. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat to me today because I know you've got loads to do. Um, but I think we've got some really interesting topics to talk about. Obviously, very pertinent to what you're doing with the launch of uh, AppScope Outsource. Um, we can discuss the growth of outsourcing. That's one of the things I really want to talk about today. Um, also, the impact of outsourcing, the impact it's had on the workplace, the impact it's had on the recruitment sector. You know, you've got huge amounts of experience on that side as well. Um, before we get into that, it'd be great if you could just give a quick intro on your background and your journey to where you are now with the launch of this, this business. And also just a little bit about the, the kind of motivating factors around what you do. Okay, um, so I've been in the recruitment industry for 30 years um, and I very much started in traditional staffing and I knew very early on that traditional staffing was never going to be my long-term career and that's because back then, 30 years ago, the element of sales, getting on the phone, bang, 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 you know, 50 sales calls a day, it was a, a very different mentality to what I know it is now. Um, but I, I realized that I was all about building the relationship with the customer, you know, really supporting the customer with what they were trying to achieve. And so fell into outsourcing, um, literally after sort of 10 years in, in, in manpower. And uh, when I went into outsourcing, it was very much the days of, of gone of looking at a customer with a pound sign above their head and a candidate. It was very much about the client has a problem, we need to fix it. And it was, you know, you, you just started to take on a much more strategic relationship. And I realized, wow, this, this is, I love the recruitment industry. I love the customers. I love the candidates. I love what I'm doing, but now I don't have to do that type of sales. I'm, it's all about service, service, service. This is, this is my home, this is what I love. What I realized as well that I, I, I always said I would leave the recruitment industry in a better place than I found it because very early on we, we had a quite poor you know, reputation. It was as, probably as bad as double glazing salesmen and, and, you know, and alike. Um, and I think the, the industry as a whole has professionalized itself quite, quite well and it's, it's got a lot better in, in how it delivers um, its services and products. So outsourcing for me began about 20 years ago, um, particularly in managed solutions. So the contingent workforce, large scale. I've had the wonderful uh, um, career of being able to work with some amazing customers. Um, and really just, you, you get such an insight into how those companies operate, their culture, their their people. Um, I've also had some horrors as well along the way, as you can imagine, um, but that, that's all in the learning. So I actually, I found that through all of the, the ups and downs of, of, of my career, landing with APSCO um, now is kind of made me think, well, do you know what? You always set out to leave the industry in better shape than you found it. If you're working for a trade body in the sector that you absolutely, part of the sector that you absolutely love, then you can influence best practice quality. You can support us raising the standards. 
um, innovation, evolution of the, the recruitment industry as a whole, I'm actually probably much better placed now um, to really do that and, and influence and impact that. So yeah, that, that's kind of, you know, full circle. So officially I've worked for Appsco Outsource now for uh, one, yeah, it's coming up for the first month. I joined on the 4th of January. And so that's super exciting, but, but along the way, you've worked for some, some big players in the recruitment industry. You've got fantastic experience. You've worked with uh, Guidant within the Impelum Group, AMS, Rulion, um, yeah. and then obviously Manpower Group early on. Yes. But, but in, in so, terms of the, sorry, carry on. No, I was going to say Manpower, the, the grounding that Manpower gave me was absolutely, I, I always said I'd be forever grateful to Manpower because the training of being a rookie, you know, I was 19 years old when I joined Manpower um, and I, I didn't know a thing about recruitment. Um, so the training and support that they gave me, which enabled me, you know, I think, you know, we joke about it still with the people in Manpower that I think I was the youngest branch manager. I was the youngest regional manager, but that, that, that they saw past anything like that. They just, you know, pushed you on, do, do, do what you can. And, yeah, it was great. And then when I went into outsourcing, which was first with Advantage, uh, right, yeah, Advantage sorry, Group, yeah. so Advantage XPO, um, again, you know, I'd never done outsourcing before. I didn't really, and I, I remember the first program I ever come across, it was um, Vendor Neutral. And I remember saying to the CEO at the time, um, what, what do you mean, Vendor Neutral? What, what is that? And he said, well, you will never feel, you don't fill the jobs. You know, we manage the service, but the supply partners fill the jobs. And I said, what, so you never actually place a candidate directly? And he said, no, it's vendor neutral. And I said, oh, that's rubbish. It will never catch on. It just won't happen. Um, he still kept me hired, actually, Johnny. So, um, <laughs> but, but, but he but didn't it, push it, you into the role of futurist. <laughs> no, but the operating models changed hugely over that time and and we, I know we're going to touch on some of that so I've seen it evolve you know massively over over that time and I, I'd imagine you know you were talking about the insights that you gained from working with the end customers um, and just in looking at how they operate um, that must have given you an incredible inside view into just the importance of workforce within these large organizations yes. how have you seen that uh, have you seen that change much over the years or um, in terms of just the importance? Do you think it's got more important or is it just it's always been a fundamental factor? I think the step change that I've seen is it's always been important. And if you look at any CEO's annual report, they always have on their annual report something around the fact of people are our greatest asset. We are yeah. what we are because of our people. And I've been seeing that in, in annual reports for many, many years. And I've actually found in the last probably 10 years that when they say it, they actually now mean it. Um, and I didn't, I don't mean that they didn't mean it before, but I could never, you could never marry up what they were doing to really demonstrate it and live and breathe what, what they were thinking. Um, and, and I remember on, you know, some research that I think it was staffing industry analysts did and they asked CEOs, what was the thing that was keeping them awake at night? And it was all about, you know, candidate experience, traction, keeping their people. And then when you dig into some of those organizations, they really weren't doing anything practical to, to address 
that that challenge and obviously we've been in a market up until very recently we've been in a, in a market where there's been huge candidate shortages um, I remember going to um, a presentation and somebody saying you know there's a war on talent and I, I was like no there isn't the war on talent's over the talent won you know it was as simple as that um, so I've seen all of that sort of change. And I, I, uh, yesterday, I think they reported that unemployment is up to 5%, which is the yeah. highest it's been for a decade. Um, what I love about the recruitment industry is we'll adapt to that. We, we, we'll, we'll find the opportunity there um, because we always do. I've been through, you know, because I'm old, I've been through three, three recessions now in, when, within my recruitment career. And we just adapt to change. And I love it. We're, we're just so agile as, as, a, as an industry because we have to respond to our clients. We have to serve our clients um, to what they need. I could not agree more with regards to that adaptability. And I think it's interesting when you're talking about the shift in the importance um, that companies place on their workforce and what they're genuinely doing about it. I mean, if you look at the shift in workforce patterns over the last 60 years, in terms of going from job for life, transitioning through to right where we are now, where the gig economy is getting more important and more relevant there's different workforce models springing up you know remote working is obviously massive at the moment outsourcing is obviously something that's growing hugely um it's really changed over that time so companies have had to adapt in their approach um to yeah. how they address their permanent employees and also how they address their extended workforce and how they you know i think there's an incredibly fascinating changes going on about you know how employer brand is relevant and how employer brand yes. is relevant to making sure you can get stuff done because it's not just mm -hmm. relevant to perm employees anymore, but your contract population and also your, your outsourced suppliers. Um, there's some fascinating elements of that, but to come back to a point you made about the adaptability of the, the recruitment sector is something that I've always really recognized. I mean, you know, back to the start of my kind of job board career back in um, 2000, 2001, um, when everyone said, oh, you know, recruitment agencies are dead, job board's going to take over, everyone's going to go direct. Recruitment agencies, recruitment businesses, I just think are, like you say, that it's moved away from just this purely transactional type approach of selling, 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 to I think recruitment organisations are very, very effective problem solvers. Yes. And they, they will maintain areas of expertise within their organisation, and then they'll apply that to the organisation. And I think when you look at outsourcing, what's your, what's your opinion? I know it's kind of earlier stages compared to the rest of the recruitment industry, but in terms of that problem-solving mechanism, do you feel that uh, recruitment businesses are are already adapting to that, or have already adapted adapted to that? I think it's a mixture. There's, you know, I, I still I'm astounded when I meet, you know, founders, managing directors of organisations where they're staffing companies and they're still banging the phones like we used to way back when. And I'm, I'm like, does that really work for you? How, how can it work for you? Um, so, so I think I, I was told a long time ago that recruitment agencies wouldn't exist today. And yet there are what 35,000 in the UK alone. So yeah. they're still here, but, but I think they have changed a lot. There's still some that do it way back how it used to be done. Um, but most don't. And, and the reason that outsource providers had to come at their customer in a very different way, they had to be distinctively different from their, you know, because most of the clients before they went to an outsource provider would use multiple agencies. 
and they used to feel, um, I remember one of my early customers telling me that they used to feel that they were being ripped off by agencies. And of course the outsource provider when, they, when, we, when we first started out was all about cost saving, saving the money, fixing the problem, supporting the client strategically. So the, the balance, the shift was, was quite considerable. Then as the outsource providers started moving through an understanding that to get the best talent, they needed supply partners to support them. And to get the best out of their supply partners, those very same recruitment agencies needed to be treated well and developed so that they could see the customer in the same light. Um, so then they started to move to having really strong supply partner relationships. Um, and I was very fortunate that I was in uh, a position at that time where you know, we created a, a fantastic supply partner uh, program. And I've, I've seen now you know, many other outsource providers you know, do exactly the same because they recognize that you can't direct fill everything if that's the model. You, you need supply partners to support you. And the recruitment agencies that are in those supply uh, positions have recognized right, this is different. This isn't just about putting a bum on a seat. This isn't just about how transactionally we might have performed before. We, we've got to change um, the way that we, we do this. Um, and, and alongside that, of course, the way you attract people to your, to your organization or to your customer's organization is, is so different. You know, I, I, I come from the time when you used to sit on a you know, in a branch on a high street and people would just come in the door and you'd register them because I'm, you know, I'm so old in, in that vein. But, you know, now it's totally different. And in outsourcing for a long time, we've been saying to the customer, it's about your brand, your, um, your candidate experience. So it's not good enough if you interview and you don't go back with feedback. It's not good enough if you, you know, reject with, with, with no understanding of how that person learns from the experience for the next time they, they're interviewed. So um, it's been a massive, massive education. Um, and customers for a long, long time used to, and I've, I've had customers say that, well, why do we bother doing that? They're only a temp, you know, they're, they're not gonna be here permanently. So why, why are we bothering? And um, it was only actually, as I started to work alongside some of the big retail brands, that suddenly the, the clock, uh, you know, the, sorry, the light bulb went on and, and it was, no, these are your customers. And the big banks got that really quickly. You know, these workers that are coming in, they might not be permanent, but my God, they're your end user customers. So you better treat them right. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's evolved massively. And I always, I always find it interesting. I think it's, I think it's very much calmed down these days, but where you saw this kind of, um, conflict within some recruitment organizations between the just the flat out straight up recruiting part of the business that generally was the kind of the big cash cow versus the outsourcing yeah. arm and the growth of those and how that's balanced out do you think that's mm. less of an issue these days um no i think it's still an issue um but, but it's different types of people Sorry. come on introductions who's that in the background <laughs> That's Mabel, who's a five-month-old puppy, and she just oh. doesn't understand Zoom. What type of dog is Mabel? She's a Tibetan Terrier. Ah, uh, is that <laughs> is that I'm trying to remember, is that quite long-haired? Yes, they that you can have them very long-haired. We're not, we're keeping her short, but uh, medium-sized dog, 
very um, full of fun and mischief. So yeah, Excellent. she's keeping me on my toes. Um, <laughs> so she's, she's, if the postman comes, unfortunately, which is what just happened, that's, that's what happens. Um, Standard so, these days. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, sorry, Johnny, I've lost my train of thought there. Where well, we, were we? we? Just so took, I think, we... yeah, that conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it still exists. Um, but, but, but actually, if a recruitment company looks at it through a wider lens, they can see that in their people, they have people that, that love the sales, love the, the more traditional ways of recruiting. And they'll also have the people that love the service element of their business. They, they will service the candidate and the client, you know, literally uh, to death. And so there's a place for both. And so these, these organizations that have got their act together, they, they've separated, they still come together, but they've separated their divisions within their business and they reward differently. That's the secret here. What I used to find a lot when I was talking to my supply partners is they used to say, well, when we supply into outsourcing to, to you guys, we have to lower our margin. Um, and obviously over in this part of the business, we can charge full margin. So they used to say to me, you know, we, we struggle to make money. And I was saying, well, how are you paying and rewarding your people that work in the division that supports the outsource providers? And when they said the same way as we are for the, what we'd call 360 recruiters, I was, you know, that, that's madness. So a lot of the conflict was all around reward. Um, but when you swap the reward and how you pay and reward out, then, then organisations can make it work. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think if you, if you look at the provision of outsourced services, another element to that is that it's getting more mature all the time in the sense that yes. I feel, I feel yes. like it's getting, it's moving from transactional to is trending towards strategic. So it feels yeah. like within the journey that you've just described, there's still a way to go and there's always going to be horses for courses in terms of the type of people that are good at fitting into the different elements of how that business operates. But I think that also applies to the way that organisations are looking to get work done in the sense that they have more options now, probably than ever before. Um, and there are some emerging yeah. areas within outsourcing that organisations are still trying to adapt to and take on, like, for example, statement of work or services procurement. How do you, yeah. if you were going to kind of define how you guys describe outsourcing or how you kind of package it up or segment it out and the differences um, between outsourcing and staffing, how would you kind of bracket that? Um, that's quite, that's a, that's quite a tricky one. I think it's, um, I think it's where the client um, basically gives you control over the end to end uh, elements of, of recruiting for them. So if, and, and then there's two, obviously very clearly, there's two types. So, it, so in, in RPO, um, it could literally be from managing any traffic that comes to their careers website, you know, the part of their website, their careers microsite, and, and literally right the way through to um, onboarding them ready to start work with that organization permanently and everything in between. In, in managed solutions in contingent, it's where the client has, you know, a work, a contingent workforce of X, and they don't want to be responsible for managing it, for replenishing it, for, 
you know, new, new, you know, new roles, new projects. And, and so they, they literally want to lift and shift it out of their organisation. All the recruitment agencies that will go with it, obviously the, the contingent workforce. So, so I, that, that's how I define those sorts of outsourcing elements of, of particular programmes. Um, of course, there's Project RPO now, um, which is where a client might just have a, a, a large project of recruiting 50 people, 500 people, and they don't have the in-house capability to do that. So they outsource it, but it's just for that period or it's just for that number of hires and, and their in-house team stays whole and manages everything else. Um, and then, of course, which you touched on, statement of work. Um, this has been around quite a while, um, but, but still it feels so new to the, to the market. And I think it's because for a long time, it, it was there, there's two types of statement of work. I, I always feel, Johnny, there's true statement of work, um, whereby if, if we tested it, it would be compliant. It would be, um, you know, not, I'm not just thinking from a contractual point of view, but I'm thinking from, you know, the milestones, the outcome based, the way that it's paid, you know, the way that it's paid for, the way that it's managed versus what we used to call disguised statement of work, which is really to move headcount from one place to another um, and, and where, you know, it was labelled as something different so that somebody could get some work done without it being widely seen. So I, I think there's a, there's a mixture. It, 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 in my view, any, anything where the client wants to lift the problem up and move it somewhere else is outsourcing. You are, you are outsourcing something to somebody else to take control and responsibility of. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the way that you describe it through the um, APSCO outsource literature as effectively encompassing MSP, RPO, statement of work and outsource, outsourcing, um, yeah. I think, you know, covers it extremely well. Um, and yeah, you know, when you talk about statement of work, it has been around for a while. And, it, and actually the management of statement of work is a big problem or management of services procurement is a big problem for a lot of companies. Um, yeah. But really, it only feels like the last 12 months, the last nine to 12 months have really driven the growth in the urgency around managing that. Various factors, we come on to discuss yeah. some of them later, but obviously things like COVID massively pushed outsourcing. Um, but as you say, there are other things like, for example, where you've got that hidden headcount, body shopping, you know, fake, fake SOW, call it what you want. You know, um, that is a real clear issue now for companies in the UK as we come into the R35 reforms. Um, and whether it's getting around a headcount freeze or whether people have got different sign-off capabilities and they, they haven't got any sign-off for, you know, a, a contractor, but they can stick in a, a project as a consultancy. Um, I think there's some really interesting elements to that. But again, it's a learning process where, from what I'm seeing, you know, I, I think recruitment organisations are, are having to react and adapt to this. Um, and what generally happens yes. at these kind of inflection points is some people within the market will say, companies are just going to sort this out themselves, recruitment companies, it's going to be outside their remit, they won't be successful. But, you know, if I take note from what I've seen historically, generally, gen generally where there are changes, recruitment organisations adapt far quicker than end organisations. And as you say, where from their point of view, if they just want to say, just take the problem away, 
whether it's based around R35 and finding a different way to get work done, or whether it's based at you know looking at a genuine full services procurement um, problem and saying I need to get my arms around that, I need to understand ROI and you know what I'm spending and what I'm getting. Um, that is uh, that's a big strategic decision, but it's something that if they decide to outsource that problem, if there's someone there that can come along and just offer a solution, then a lot of companies are going to take that route. Not all of them, obviously, but um, that's that. I feel like that's the next major um, opportunity for evolution and adaptation within the staffing mm-hmm. sector. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I, th- I think. I think generally, um, I think I saw it in a McKenzie report that they're calling this the fourth industrial revolution because the ability for everybody to work from home, um, you know, or as many people as possible to work from home. I, I remember back in, you know, I had a friend who worked at one of the big banks and they were told you will never be able to work from home. You know, security, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It just can't happen. And yet she's very senior. She she works from home, right? You know, um, and these things all. So so that that's why I think this whole revolution of how work is getting done, it, it's 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 massive. But it it but it is a, a clear step change. Um, and therefore, I don't believe it can go back to the way it was. There's no need. Why would you? Why why do you want to do that? Um, so I I think. Um, where I think recruitment agencies more so are, are probably a little more hesitant within the statement of work arena is they recognize that there's a lot of responsibility and potentially liability to take on in that, in, in that in re- arrangement. If you think of outsource providers, they've been taking on responsibility and liability for years, you know, huge liabilities, um, all contractual, so they're very familiar with that model. So I, I think they will be able to deliver it to their customers um, a lot easier, but will have, again, recruitment partners to help them. I think that's how it will probably flow. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing different things in the market in the way that large recruitment organisations are approaching it and some of the kind of mid-sized and smaller ones that are very nimble and they're kind of moving up and down the value chain in the sense that some people are offering right. project services and that might even be quite small, maybe very specialist recruitment companies start moving into having a PMO function and offering project services. And then you've got the larger organizations that are offering the full management, effectively an MSP for statement of work or for services procurement yes. right at the kind of top yeah. level. Um, yeah. So it's a very interesting transition. And, and as you rightly pointed out, it's fundamentally about getting work done. And, and it's, it's just those pragmatic business decisions that need to take place around what is the most effective use of our resources? What, what, how, do we, you know, how do we get things done? What different channels have we got? And statement of work or services procurement is just an additional channel. It feels like it's a newer one, but it's not. But it's, it's being kind of, it's being utilized more now. I mean, you talk about remote working, you know, how are people tracking what, what gets done? That's yeah. quite a, it's quite an interesting question when you get into the, um, you know, the idea of suddenly loads of people are working from home and you, you might see that they're on teams, they're active on teams, but that, you know, you don't, you don't know what they're doing. Um, no. So, you know, do, do you go into a sort of uh, surveillance state of, uh, of, of trying to capture that or, or does that potentially, that factor, push more towards outcomes and actual yeah. deliverables where you can say, mm. don't really care 
um, you know, how you do it, as long as you do it, do what you've what I've asked you to do on time at the right budget in, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. effectively delivered. So I think there's uh, yes. that it's SOW's broadened its scope in the sense that, you know, services procurement and SOW has been around for a long time. But now it's being more widely used as a work delivery mechanism, effectively. Yes, I totally agree with that, hundred percent. And if I if I was in that situation, I'd much prefer the outcome based management style than one of surveillance. I don't think anybody would want to be in that environment. Exactly. I mean, you know, judge me on what I do and what I've delivered. Um, and it's interesting when you look at some of the gig marketplaces. So I've spent some time working in that sector, and um, you know, with some of the kind of you know, lower level global gig marketplaces that generally like repeatable, um, generally lower skilled tasks done very cheaply, quite often in low cost locations around the world. You know, some of them, I don't know whether they still offer it, but there certainly were options for things like screen capture. So you mm -hmm. could basically kind of like do check in on what the person is doing and check in on the hours that they put in and all this sort of thing. So yeah. that does feel a little bit weird um, to me, but we've had this yeah. rapid period of development in, in terms of the way the workforce operates, it was massively changing with things like um, Uber, Deliveroo, this kind of blossoming of the gig economy from about kind of yeah. 20, 2012, 2013 onwards. Um, and that was really starting to accelerate. Governments were trying to get on top of it. You know, the, uh, the UK government was looking at this with the Taylor Review. You had, you know, lots of stuff going on in the US where they're looking at employed versus um, self-employed. Um, and yeah. then you that you get the ultimate game changer of COVID, yes. which, um, you know, I had a, a conversation with um, uh, one of the guys at Staffing Industry Analysts when when the first lockdown kind of kicked in. And they were just saying that it would be interesting to see how this plays out in terms of the adoption of, for example, technology, workforce technology, yeah. because the 2008 recession caused a massive spike where there was a huge uptake, for example, of VMS technology. Um, and now that we're in this situation, you know, these sort of changes are often adapted to um, from a tech point of view. Um, so, yeah, I just think COVID has been the ultimate step change. And as you say, mm. things may never go back to the way they were. Why would they if there are efficient ways to do things that we never thought were possible, like loads of people being remote, doing video calls all the time? Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of companies are just realising that actually it is perfectly doable. There was some adjustment, but... I think I think the, the biggest challenge has been that we've been very slow to roll out decent fibre across the UK. And that's been very evident with, you know, how many times have you heard, oh, I've got a bad, bad connection or my signal's not great. Um, and I, you know, unfortunately live right out in the sticks. So we, we were, even though my husband works for BT, you'd think that we'd have the best broadband and we've probably got one of the worst. And, um, <laughs> and but, but it's because, and, and, and a very good friend of mine has launched a whole new business on the back of this situation because remote working has showed that we need more people rolling out fibre and she set out to create her own recruitment company specialising in, in fibre optics and how we get broadband out to all the homes, both in terms of corporate and domestic, but mainly domestic. And uh, she's you know, literally overwhelmed with opportunities right now. Um, because companies need, you know, the network providers need to get this rolled out quicker, um, which again is another signal that they know we will go back to the offices, but not in the same way as we were before COVID. I just don't think that will happen. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I definitely can still see the value in teams being able to get together for specific yeah. meetings, workshops, for people to have the facility to go into the office where they, when they want to and then work from home when they want to because everyone's had to just get on with it. But clearly yeah. for a lot of people, it's been inconvenient, whether it's kids or pets or whatever it might be, um, commutes, there's pros and cons to either side of it. So I think the ultimate uh, balance is just having the flexibility of being able to get together when you need to. So I think a lot more flexible kind of workspace type um, stuff will become more the norm. Um, but you guys, with, with regards to AppsCo Outsource, why is... Um, why is now the time? Is it these kind of events have kind of precipitated this? What, what's the driving factor? You've got the launch, launch is tomorrow, isn't it? Yes. How's the timing worked out? Um, I, I think it's something that Appsco Global have been deliberating for some time because the outsourcing market has, has grown so much um, over the last 10 years or so and is continuing to do so despite COVID, despite, you know, um, Brexit, despite IR35, all the, all the things that are the challenges that we're seeing in the, in the economy. Um, outsourcing is, again, predicted this year to grow by another 18%. So, you know, it, it's still growing um, and, and it's growing different kind of legs in, in the process. So I think APSCO Global had already talked about this uh, and was something that they thought actually we should it's such a huge part of the recruitment market um, we should have representation um, not only from a um, for our members from a trade body perspective to support guide quality um, as I said earlier raising standards and so forth but more around lobbying um, we, you know we APSCO is a very active um, political lobbying organization we uh, challenge policy. We 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 um, are consulted on policy with government. So we need to represent a, a part of the industry that that's that's huge and growing. So it, it was just yeah, it was just one of those things that the the stars started to align, and the CEO and Swain of, of Apsco um, Global spoke to me and said, you know, what about now? Um, and it was it was just. Yeah, just felt like the right opportunity at the right time. I think it's very timely. Um, I think with everything going on and the the sort of market forces that you described, um, now's the time for action because there are mm. there are various factors that force people, force companies, and force individuals into action um, to to deal with things that otherwise and previously can be ignored and just just left. Um, so yeah. it is a a massive time for change, a massive time for action and activity um, and I think so so tell me a little bit about how for example the dialogue with government um, and also industry organizations um, and also the end users within big customers how are those how, how are those dialogues going to kind of come together for the further furtherment of, of the betterment of this this industry so I think in terms of it's having a structure to all of the different outlets so um, we have a representative committee for outsource, which is 10 uh, very, um, so it's 10 members uh, of organisations that have, you know, outsourcing um, services. They're either CEO, MD, uh, senior director level people, and they have obviously their own feed from 
their businesses and their end user clients that they're bringing. So we, we will meet uh, bi-monthly and they will help drive that agenda. They effectively become my bosses, the 10 of them. Um, so it's quite interesting for me. I've gone from being a competitor peer of them to now <laughs> then being my bosses. So I'm sure they're going to love that. So Hopefully there weren't too many bridges burned along the way. <laughs> no, I've, I've learned that in this industry, Johnny. It's too incestuous. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, so um, I, I hope that's why I've lasted this long in it. Um, so we, we're going to meet bi-monthly and start to drive that, that agenda. Um, my, my overall members, we will meet also bi-monthly and start to bring that conversation together. Within our um, innovation and leadership events that we'll hold quarterly, we are inviting organisations such as SIP, such as CIPD, such as um, uh, end user customers to, to those meetings, those events, um, so that we can hear it firsthand and, and join the dots. We, we're very fortunate in APSCO. We work with an amazing public affairs company that support us. Um, but, but again, that policy group, they, they, they also meet twice a year. Um, and we tend to meet at the beginning of the year in the middle of the year. And at the beginning of the year, we start to look at, okay, so what, what policy changes have come in? What policy or legislative, legislative changes do we need to adapt to? How can we better support our members? So if you can imagine, you've got these you know, real open lines of communication all coming in and they're going into a big pot almost. That's the only way I can describe it, a big cooking pot where we can then understand the most pressing things. What I, what I have found, so just is a, an example, it's, it's just a, something that I'm very aware of, that if, if you're an outsourced provider and you're very fortunate to work with government indirectly as a customer, government are very good paying you. They're, they're good payers. They pay... Um, on time and and sometimes the payment terms are as, as, as good as you know once a fortnight um, and obviously recruitment providers in, enjoy working you know under those sort of payment terms however in the private sector it is not unusual for a managed solution provider to be pushed upon 120 days or 180 day payment terms you know, you are, you are effectively becoming that end client's bank. Um, mm. and, and I don't really feel that is fair. Um, it certainly um, is something that I think affects the way that that organisation works with that end user client. You know, some, somewhere along the line, somewhere in that procurement process, that sort of, those sort of payment terms has to be paid for somewhere in, in the transaction. So... It's squeezing, squeezing the balloon, basically. It is very much so. So it's things like that that we, we want to be able to challenge. It's um, things, things like that. So for a small, you know, small, medium sized organization, you know, they, they, they just can't they just can't sign to that. They just can't cope with that, that sort of uh, squeeze. So, 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 the end, um, so the end client yeah. might be sorry. I was just to say, so yes, on that subject, you might have a situation where the end client is squeezing so hard on things like that that they're missing out on the supplier diversity or the agility of maybe slightly smaller suppliers and ultimately that's not really benefiting either party no no and if you think the government you know actively encourages small medium enterprises they've they've pushed that um that agenda well and truly and and, and the whole dni piece which is found in these pockets sometimes of organizations that our end user clients really want to work with 
well then you're putting barriers in front of them before you even from the get-go you know before we even get going so it's things like that that I, I want to be involved in influencing and changing um so the there's many, many more, but they're, they're the sort of, you know, things that we're, we're going to get involved in. And in terms of the type of stakeholders that you're going to be um, getting involved from the end user clients, is that going to be more procurement? Is it a crossover between procurement and HR? What sort of functional uh, divisions do you think you're, you're primarily going to be putting in on that side? It will be both. It will be, you know, from a procurement standpoint. And that's why I was really, really key to start collaborating with organizations such as SIPs um, so that, you know, challenge, influence, educate. Um, so that's that, that's that, you know, the, the procurement network within within SIPs, but also direct, you know, I've, I've worked, as I said, in the industry for 30 years. I've amassed lots of clients in that time. Some actually are really good friends of mine now. Um, but when I, before I took the job with Apsco Outsource, I spoke to them about what outsource, what I, you know, my vision of what I thought outsource could become. And I said very much, I want the end user customer in the room so that everyone can hear this and understand it. Um, one of the things that I, I want to be very clear around is, is keeping pace with our customers and, and end user customers. Now that doesn't always mean going faster than them. And equally, obviously you don't want to be slower than them, but, but actually at pace with them and also driving some of the pace. So um, there's, in, in, that, um, in that time, when I look at the clients that, that, that I have in my network, they are across so many different sectors, but they are predominantly in, you know, HR, director level, uh, procurement, uh, again, director level, but, but also um, some, some areas of, of key delivery. So where you've got, um, you know, delivery directors of, of programs on the client side, you know, those types of individuals. So, so we can really get a cross mix. Yeah, I was going to say, when you look at the operational side of it, um, delivery, you start getting more into outsourcing, you know, particularly areas like where it's project based <clears throat> or deliverables based. Um, that really starts knitting into the fabric within those organisations of how program management, how it actually gets delivered, the real operations of that actual organisation. And, it, and, it, and I think that's going to become something that, I, I think will um, that will increase over time. Um, but I think when you look at it purely from a procurement perspective, I think with everything going on at the moment, I think the importance of procurement has never been higher from a strategic point of view. You know, organizations everywhere are looking at how they can cut costs and be more efficient. Um, but also there's no point in just cutting costs for the sake of it. You know, it's about driving return. If you're spending something and it's delivering something fantastic, yeah. do more of that, please. So yeah. procurement need to take more of a strategic role. And I, and I know that, you know, most senior people within procurement and well, anybody within procurement wants to be more strategic. They don't just want to be stuck in a transactional scenario um, because they can really bring that stuff. They're given the, you know, the seat at the table and the opportunity. They can really bring that stuff to the surface and feed that into CFO, CEO, whoever it may be to help drive the overall strategy. Um, so I think being able to, bring procurement leaders in to this conversation alongside operational people and HR people um, is going to be critical to, to moving it forward. Yes. And, and in terms of, of uh, interactions with, with trade bodies like mentioned SIPs, um, 
what do they see as the kind of opportunities and the motivating factors around um, what they can do and what you can do with them in this sector? Well, so we're in early conversations. I'm talking to the, the chairwoman of SIPS um, and, you know, Shirley and I have, have had a couple of conversations and, and initially I think it's, so I, I'm coming at it from the point of probably challenging some bad buying practices and Shirley's coming from it from the point of actually allowing, you know, procurement to hear and understand and also receive that challenge directly. Um, I, I, um, I, I like the fact that, so before I was um, part of Absco Outsource, obviously I was working for some of the major global outsource providers and um, I used to try and get some sort of um, traction with SIPs. I, I wanted to have a relationship with SIPs. And they wouldn't ever let me near them because obviously I was for working for an outsource provider. But directly now I'm in the driving seat of a, of, of a, a fellow trade body. I'm, I'm allowed in. So I'm, I'm liking the access to all areas all of a sudden. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to really understanding how we can work together. It, it just feels that I know this is the right sort of style. It's just like collaborating with, you know, SIA is an example, you know, it's, it's highlighting you know key organizations where outsource can really collaborate and work together to 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 be a force for good for for the sector so that's why i'm sort of concentrating the moment on 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 how we work with sips how we might work with cipd how we will work with um sia um and then another in organization i've been introduced recently i'm so excited about is a company called positive impact commerce um which is, you know, really around the people, planet, society, um, and, and 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 ultimately profit. But but how it's so it's, it's really positive um, capitalism. So capitalism doing what it should do, what it's designed to do. So these are the sort of um, other organisations I want to bring to the Apps Go Outsource Party for my members and I to really understand and and you know, start to, as I say, collaborate and influence as much as we can. Yeah, and I think it's a fantastic opportunity to, to bring the dialogue together um, with these different parties that, you know, may not, they may not get the uh, kind of uh, opportunity to uh, discuss these type of things outside of a live situation. You know, if it's a live situation where someone's already a customer or there's someone selling into somebody else, everybody's got their guard up and you know there's yeah. different motivating factors in there but just to be able to have an open discussion there are clearly going to be better ways for everybody to work together that work to everybody's advantage um so yes. i think that's really really exciting um i think another area that um has hugely exciting potential is is just around best practice and i guess that this kind of dialogue and what comes out of this and the way that the government are driving things and all of these factors come together that can help shape what best best practice is um, and what be best practice becomes. How do how do you as a as a trade body? How do you see uh, what do you see as the best way for you guys to contribute to that to help define best practice and ensure best practice? So I think um, Absco UK do that very well in the staffing industry you know, market, um, and they do it through. Um, educating so there's the, the learning and development side of the business which showcases best practice and then of course members that sign up to um, 
our code of conduct. They sign up to be part of, um, you know, being as a member, you will be audited and they agree to that when they sign in, in to become members, they, they get audited as a business um, on a biannual basis. So um, the same will apply in, in outsource. You know, we will mirror some of that, that, that influence uh, of the, our members because we've seen that that's been a very successful route for uh, the rest of APSCO. So it will be around that education bit, around learning and development, but, but also around we have to adhere to the code. We have to behave in this way. If you don't as a member, then, you know, quite often, you, you know, if, if that's the case, then you might not um, be able to stay a member. Um, so it's, it, there is an element of compliance, unfortunately, but, but it is the way of the world that, you know, we want, we want um, I think it goes back, I, I, and, and people who've worked for me have heard me say this a lot, you, you will always be judged by the company you keep. And I want apps go outsource our members to be like-minded people to, you know, we, we, we are, you know, those members are competitors of each other, but when they come together, the competitive piece needs to go so that they can allow us to just get better in within the industry that we we operate and you know be be judged by the company you keep you know you're you're you know i want us to be able to say you know come and join apps go outsource you'll be in good company because these organizations do it right and they do it well um and and so so i think that that's really the vision for it of of ensuring that we we get the providers signed up to that from the from the get-go yeah so so it's really all about setting standards setting reasonable you know forward-looking standards that help the industry and help every every stakeholder to to for it to be the best it possibly can be and then you know everyone being held to account of that effectively by by the organization by the trade body by by each other by themselves um how do you see that working or what do you see as the kind of evolutionary path towards that in more sort of emergent areas like statement of work for example where it's, it's you know it's it's a lot earlier in the journey um how do you see that playing out in terms of kind of best practice in areas like that again i, I think um any of the solutions um regardless of what the solutions are they need to be compliant they need to be first and foremost legal and you'll be surprised, or you won't be surprised, Johnny, you, you know um, that there's people out there who try and do these things by cutting corners and, and not having the, you know, the right contractual um, obligations outlined, the right um, way of working. And so I think initially it's in, in areas such as statement of work, it's, it's first of all, making sure that the, the process and, and in, the tech platform as it were, because most of these things now, well, pretty much everything I can think of in the outsource world is underpinned by some technology. And so then there must be a way within that technology of making sure it's legal and compliant. Um, so we, we, you know, one, once that element of it is, is done, then I think it's, um, it's more a case of allowing allowing that part of the market to, to continue, as you've seen, start to, started to really flourish now, and it, it's growing at quite a rate. Um, so allowing that to happen, but, but always having that check and balance that it's still, you know, um, 
compliant, it's still doing what it should be doing and it's legal um, and so forth. So not, not just ways around headcount, um, as you called it earlier, I think you said fake SOW. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Hidden headcount, rogue spend, you know, pe- mm. body shopping, uh, many different names. But yeah, I agree. And I think if you look at um, if you look at R35 as a driver of change and a driver in the growth of the use of statement of work as a work delivery model, you know, people have to look at it in the right context. <clears throat> Pardon me. So statement of work isn't a solution, isn't an R35 solution. No. It's just another way of getting work done. Mm. And ultimately the question should always start at the beginning of what's the most effective way to get this piece of work done. It could be that it's a permanent employee, it could be that it's a contractor or a temp, or it could be that it's a genuine outsourced project. Um, And, you know, as you say, tech providers like ourselves, you know, for us, obviously just specialising in statement of work, there's a responsibility to make sure that our technology is structured in such a way that it supports the correct delivery of that work mode effectively. Yes. at, but there's also a responsibility on the end client, but also very specifically on the intermediary. If an intermediary is involved in facilitating that process, they will generally take potentially some liability for delivery. Although obviously in a lot of cases, that's back to back with the supplier where an MSP type situation is involved. Um, but they will also quite often take a hand in advising the client around contractual the contractual side of it, which is one thing how they package up work effectively if they want to get it delivered under an SOW, which has to be done properly. But very crucially, making sure that the actual delivery is in line with the way they've said they're going to deliver it. In the sense, you can't just create a statement of work and then have someone say, yeah, that's great, and carry on working under a, uh, you know, do the work under a T&M type of situation. Um, So I think there are are definitely checks and balances that need to be part of the discussion. but with, with legislation changes like IR35, that's just making everyone smarten up their act and everyone makes sure that they're doing things properly. Although, having said that, you still see stuff going on in the market where you sort of think, you know, you see these kind of quick fixes come in and you just think some of that stuff's going to fall face down hmm. when yeah. it actually comes in. And we, we've invested heavily at APSCO um, in our legal help desk and our legal help desk has received no end of, of questions and queries uh, from organisations around such things is, you know, how certain things get done or, or they've done something a certain way and that's created a dispute. Um, and an outsource from tomorrow, we will launch our own uh, legal help desk to support our members, specifically in the outsource sector, because you do find the sort of things that come up in, in that arena are slightly different to staffing. So we will have that. And then we have other services uh, aligned to that, whether that be on immigration or accountancy or you know, those types of services that, that will all be available once we launch tomorrow. That sounds brilliant. Um, so you mentioned immigration there uh, briefly. Um, mm. One of the things I wanted to just get your thoughts on really was just the, the impacts of some of the big factors that we're seeing at the moment. So obviously, COVID's the giant one, uh, and that's impacting yeah. everybody. But there's also, yeah. obviously, IR35, which is a real hot topic at the moment. But Brexit kind of almost slipped under the radar a little bit. What, what's your view on the kind of individual impact of those three things, and also the combined impact of, of them all kind of happening at a similar time? 
Oh my God, Johnny. Apart that's... from just the word chaos. <laughs> yeah, but I've always said the recruitment industry is is performs at its best during chaos. Um, it is it's one the of those... type of people that work in the yeah, industry. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they love we a bit love, of chaos. We love chaos. We love a bit of chaos. Chaos creates opportunity. Yes. Um, definitely. So it's a bit like you asking me, you know, how do you eat an elephant? And I'd say one bite at a time. And that's how, to me, COVID, IR35, Brexit all feels. It's just like this enormous elephant that's going to have each individual ch challenges. So, so I think COVID, the output of COVID will be, as we've started to see, high levels of unemployment or higher levels of unemployment and a candidate marketplace that needs to build confidence again. I do think there are certain sectors, certain working environments that will change forever. And when Mackenzie called it the fourth industrial revolution, some of the leaning in there is around people potentially totally reskilling um, because their jobs just won't exist in the future. And you think of the high street, you know, retail environment where those roles just won't exist. Uh, to the level that they have um, so those people need to reskill and do other things and there's I'm pleased to say I believe there's there are opportunities out there for that to happen so I think it's then how do you make use of drawing down the underutilized apprenticeship levy things like that to to drive that to happen so I think COVID's going to have it will need time for consumers and therefore market to do you know overcome that confidence you know to, to become more confident the reskilling element of it and obviously for government you know they, they're going to have to pay back the debt right we we are going to have to pay back the debt so how's that going to work within um ir35 we spoke very early on the agility of the you know the organizations within the sector and and they they will look at it as, well, we've just got to change. We've got to change the way that we've worked before and we'll have different models to suit different customers. So whilst it, 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 is, uh, it is impactful, I think because the government have gone, gone to go live now, what, twice and, and stopped. Um, and a, a colleague told me the other day, they'd asked one of the ministers, do you think IR35 will still go ahead? Because there's still some, some you know, whisperings that they might pause it again, but no, the, the minister said, no, it will absolutely go ahead. So, but I think a lot of companies, we've got ready for this two or three times. Um, and, and there's a whole host have already been through it with the public se uh, private sector, uh, public sector. So th those things will, will, will happen. With Brexit, you're absolutely right. It's sort of, we, we talked about it for so long that it was just, you know, constantly on the news. And then suddenly COVID took over everything. And so Brexit sort of slipped under, as you say. However, now um, we're starting to get the questions around visas and immigration, um, about how we can still keep the workforce fluid. Um, and I think that will be some of the key kind of next steps of Brexit will be, how do we get around some of this? How do we work with this? Um, and that I don't have all the answers to, but, but I'm very fortunate that I have a team behind me who do have a lot of those answers that I will lean upon to support our members 
um, with the next steps of Brexit. But yeah, just at the moment, I don't know about you, I just look at it and just think it's, it's just a huge elephant, all of it, all combined, it's just massive. Um, what, what I am pleased to say, which I think will be such a hugely positive thing. So I've sat on the board of the Recruitment Industry Disability Initiative for about six or seven years now. Um, and I've been pushing and championing getting disabled people into work. Initially, actually, I saw it selfishly as an untapped talent pool that I could pull upon, um, but also morally the right thing to do. So um, we, we've had some great success over the years and more and more organisations are doing, doing what they should do and, and actually fixing their environments to be much more inclusive. And what they have found is the whole DNI spectrum is huge, all the different strands. But actually, what I found is if you fix your processes and behaviours around disability, it automatically makes your organisation so much more inclusive for every other strand of the DNI um, agenda. So, um, I, I, I think this whole working from home is really started to push down some of those barriers that were put up. Um, around disabled candidates. It's leveled that playing field considerably. Um, so I think that's been hugely positive. I also think that because of what's happened, organizations, instead of, you know, because a lot of them have, you know, huge, great big glossy marketing spins on DNI and, you know, their green credentials and so forth. Um, and now I think, again, it comes back to stop talking about it and actually do practical things to make it happen. And I've been pushing on around the green agenda for some time. I have felt that that's you know, something that's gonna come back with, with real vengeance, you know, it, it, you know, stop again, less about conversation, more about um, action. And with Joe Biden coming into the US uh, as the president, I think again, his agenda is very much set um, around that. So I, that will automatically have a surge on, on the UK. The government already set out um, their agenda on it, but I think that's gonna be pushed even further and they've already announced lots more money in, into that direction. So some of the real positives, will I think will be the social shift and the dynamics around ED&I, planet um society I, I i just think that that's going to change for the real good of of you know the real better uh for the for the country so i think that's the, the positives it's such an interesting area i mean you know you can't hoodwink young people coming into the market now around environmental issues you know that they're, they're much more likely to make you know it's much more important factor for them to make a job choice on their you know how they view a potential employer from an, you know, an ethical point of view yeah. um, around sustainability, or it might be around diversity or equality or any other factor, but that's, you know, they're, they're less just about the paycheck. Yeah. Um, and people are, you know, they're, they're more inclined to look at it from a wider thing of do, do I want to align myself with this organization? It kind of ties back to what I was saying about, you know, what is a brand these days? And, and mm. you know, how you, how you have that employer value proposition or whatever it might be, what your brand means, because, you look at it, you know, what does your brand mean to your permanent employees? That's important. But, but contingent workforce has grown massively. What do people, are, are people really using their brand effectively with contingent workforce? In many cases, I would say no, but they're starting yes. to. It's much more of a priority. But then you look at the yes. growth of outsourced services, things like SOW. If you're bringing in SOW suppliers, again, the same thing is going to be true. You're, you're going to need to try and get the best suppliers in 
to deliver the deliver the work for you if it's suitable to be delivered in that way. But you're need, going to need to appeal to them, not just in ways of um, you know paying well or paying quickly or whatever, but but in terms of alignment. And I just think yes. that's just a much more important thing globally now. And it's becoming. I mean, I studied environmental biology back in the day when I was at university, and I was like, this is going to be massive when I come out of university. <laughs> Ecology is going to be so important. We're just about catching up to yeah. where I thought it might yeah. be at the time. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a it's a huge opportunity. Um, but I also think I agree with what you're saying about um, COVID in some ways helping diversity and inclusion. I just think it's leveled level the playing field. Yeah. I just, you know, it's even, it, you know, whether you look at it from a disability point of view. So for people that have um, troubles with mobility, for example, just yeah. getting around, getting into offices, offices yeah. not being... Um, you know, mobility friendly, uh, as it were, yep. if people are, are working more from home, then that immediately slashes that problem to a much yep. smaller, much smaller problem. Um, but if you just look at what COVID has done with a lot of people working from home, I'm here in my loft room with a mini light, you know, light sh shade mohawk on the top of my head. Um, <laughs> you, you're dealing with people in their own clothes, you know, not in their work clothes so much, in their own house, with um, their mm -hmm. pet dog barking in the background yeah. or their kids coming up exactly. behind them and stuff like that. I just think it's leveled yeah. the playing field in terms of interactions. It's much yeah. more, I feel like it's much more person-to-person -person interactions than previously where you're dealing with somebody and they're hiding behind the big shiny office, the big brand, whatever it might be, the construct around that. It's, it's swept a lot of that out of the way. So I think it just levels the playing field in a lot of areas, no matter what someone's... Um, background is in any area it's all about you know valid input and yeah. working together as people so yeah in some ways you could say that's been there's, there's real positive potential that could come out of that yeah I I am um, I remember because because some of you know my influences if I think in my my life I've had lots of influence throughout my career but actually some of my bigger biggest influences have been my children <laughs> you know they're they're of that age now you know my son's going to be 21 next month my daughter's 23 so they they ask the questions they test that that theory and and I love it that that really helps me get a perspective on on you know the younger generation what's important to them and and coming through the as you say into into work for the first time but I, uh, again, when the kids were little, used to have that saying, didn't you? Inside voice, an outside voice. And I remember you know, saying to the children when I was on a call, no, use your inside voice. <laughs> you know? um, but actually, when I then started working with you know, big corporations, which I've been very fortunate to do, I've actually used that same term to describe being authentic. And, yeah. and you said earlier, you know, you can't hoodwink, you can't, you know, you can't be fake. They're, they're surrounded by fakeness and they can identify it from a, a mile away. Um, so actually it's for those companies, whatever their great, big, brilliant marketing, you know, and a lot of the marketing process have been automated now, but whatever that brilliant machine is of your marketing, which is your outside voice, my God, make sure it matches your inside voice because you know, those two things, that, that's where fake, you know, you see fake because the, the, the two things are not the same. So, when, you know, the big corporations that I've worked with and been very fortunate to lead, I've always, you know, told my teams, you know, we, we have to behave that way. We have to be that. If that's what we want to stand for, if that's who we, we believe we are, my God, then, 
then it's the inside and the outside voice. They need to be the same. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, a really good way to put it. And ultimately, you know, if you don't hold true to that, you'll get found out eventually. Um, yeah. And, and you know, as you were talking about, I can't remember the name of the uh, uh, ethical, uh, I think it was an ethical buying or ethical business organisation you were talking about. Ultimately, these oh, things... Uh, positive Impact Commerce, pick. Pos positive Impact Commerce. Yeah. So, so ultimately, yeah. you know, these things do tie into the success of an organisation. You, yeah. you've seen you've seen that where um organizations even if they're a supplier have distanced themselves from other organizations if they disagree with you know a political or social standpoint that that organization yes. might have or maybe them seeing that organization not standing up for something that they think they should be and even suppliers will say well we're not working with them anymore even if yes. they're one of our big customers so it all ties yeah. in and yeah much more now than it has ever been it has to be real um so yeah, I, I join with you in that as a positive outlook. <laughs> um, I really appreciate your time. We'll wrap up in a minute, but just, just before we yeah. do, I just wanted to get your opinion on one last thing. And that is just, if you look at what you're doing, if you look at all the things that you're addressing and the vision um, that you and the APSCO team have for APSCO Outsource, how does, that, how does that fit within the global scenario? What's the global outlook for what you guys are doing? So we recognise that the UK is not the largest outsourcing market. Uh, obviously, that's North America. But what we did under what we were very clear is that APSCO has an amazing brand already and reputation in the UK. So it was better to launch here, leverage from that reputation and um, brand. Um, but APSCO Global already has operations in Germany, Singapore, Malaysia, Australia. So we, we absolutely have a global view of this and outsourcing in different levels of maturity across the globe. But interestingly, one area that APSCO Global doesn't currently have a presence is North America. Mm. Um, but I have worked extensively within North America and have lots of contacts there. And also, as I said, it is the largest outsourcing market in the world. So it will make sense for us to push on that um, the global presence sooner rather than later um, and so yeah watch this space that that that's definitely going to be happening fantastic i think it's a huge opportunity um well listen bell thank you so much for taking the time really appreciate it loads of super exciting things going on and uh, i probably let her better let you go so that you can get everything ready for tomorrow's launch <laughs> good luck with that um thank you, and Johnny. yeah really appreciate your time it's great to chat to you pleasure take care thank you, you bye too. Cheers.